Greetings, podcast listeners. Welcome to the season finale of First Person Storyteller, episode 12. Uh, Thank you for joining me, as always, for this, the podcast platform that allows gamers and non-gamers alike to share their stories about uh, how gaming has positively impacted their lives or the lives of people that they know and love. I'm your host, as always, Scott Castro, uh, and I want to start off today um, by thanking all of my listeners um, for their continued support throughout the first season of uh, First Person Storyteller and for understanding the um, decision to take on a seasonal format um, you know, as an independent podcaster uh, with you know, no source of sponsorship or um, you know, any kind of you know, anything behind me, it's just an independent thing that I like to do because I think it, it spreads a good message about our community and, and shares um, and, and provides a platform to share a lot of positive stories um, that I think sometimes, you know, a lot of times um, non-gamers don't think about, um, about our community and, and even gamers, you know, they, they don't, you know, sometimes, you know, we get so consumed in uh, our own lives we don't think about how that, uh, how this, um, this industry, this, uh, you know, these products, these, um, uh, and, and our passions, um, you know, help support other people. Um, and that was the reason I started the podcast in the first place. Um, I wanted to shine a good light on this community and I, I think we've accomplished that. Um, and, um, I want to continue to accomplish that. So, um, following the release of this episode, I will begin working on collecting, um, interviews for um, season two of First Person Storyteller, which I hope uh, will begin this fall, much like uh, season one of First Person Storyteller began last fall uh, in October, specifically. So, um, wow, uh, it's about half a year, um, 12 episodes, about eight hours of audio, um, and just, you know, the first episode was was my story, but the, the the other eleven, I have to say, I mean, just the stories that we've shared on this platform have have been incredible. Um, each one, independently unique, um, and and sharing a different angle on on um, on how gaming impacts people outside of pure entertainment. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, gotten, like I said, a lot of positive feedback about um, taking on the seasonal format. Um, but, uh, I think this episode will serve as an appropriate season finale. Um, all of the stories shared on first person storyteller are, are heartfelt and are unique and are powerful. Um, this one, like a few of them that we've shared, the, um, this first season, um, hits home personally for me, just in advocacy work that I do, um, for, uh, the homeless population uh, here in Richmond, Virginia. Um, my guest on the show today, and um, observant listeners will notice we did not have an episode preview this week. I usually, a week ahead of the episode, publish a preview of the episode with um, maybe the story that um, sparked me trying to get this interview or details about um, you know the subject of the upcoming episode. Um, this one was particularly tricky just because... Um, uh, while Kelsey uh, was very um, uh, accommodating, uh, it was really difficult because she, as you will um, find out right away in our interview, is from uh, Melbourne, Australia. 
and that is a 15-hour time difference from uh, U.S. Uh, Eastern Standard. So um, <laughs> not only was it difficult just to communicate because they, a lot of the hours were awake, they were, uh, she was asleep, um, but also just to kind of find a time that would work for both of us, uh, Kelsey with a young family and um, you know, me with my own responsibilities. Um, so uh, we didn't have an episode preview because I wasn't certain until probably, I think it was 11 p.m. last night, U.S. Eastern Standard, that I knew that when the interview was going to be, that we were going to sit down. And it was actually, uh, I'm recording this uh, the evening of Easter Sunday, and we recorded the interview at 7 a.m. this morning, um, which was for Kelsey, 10 p.m. on Easter Sunday in Melbourne, Australia. Um, so just to give you a, an idea of the logistics of this, but um, outside of, of the logistical hurdles, uh, I think that um, this is just, this, this story was so rewarding to hear and I think we'll, uh, and from what I gathered from Kelsey after talking to her privately after the interview was really rewarding for her to tell. This isn't a story that she shares with a lot of people. Um, and so I think it, it makes it even that much more meaningful that she shared it with me, but also just, um, you know, it's, it's hard to admit when we've made mistakes and it's hard once we have corrected ourselves to look back on a time when, you know, we, uh, times weren't as easy. Um, and Kelsey does just that. And so without further ado, I'm going to present Kelsey's interview on this, the final episode of season one of First Person Storyteller. I'm your host, as always, Scott Castro. Thank you very much uh, for joining me. And until next time, uh, game on, listeners. Thank you all for joining me uh, today for this episode of First Person Storyteller. I'm your host, as always, Scott Castro, and I'm really, um, I'm really elated um, to have a special guest on the podcast today. Um, Kelsey uh, posted, uh, wrote a story, uh, a very heartfelt story um, that uh, really connected with me personally um, in the work that I do um, in my spare time with uh, homelessness uh, advocacy. And um, I just thought her story was so perfect for, um, for, this, for this medium. And I'm, I'm so grateful that she was willing to um, join me today, despite our, uh, our, the difficulty of a 15-hour time difference. Uh, it is currently 10 p.m. where she is and 7 a.m. where I am. So, uh, but anyway, without further ado, Kelsey, um, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. It's not a problem at all, and I do apologize in advance if you hear neighborhood dogs barking. <laughs> I'm currently in my backyard, so. That's okay. I apologize if I sound exhausted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're both in that position right now, so hooray, time differences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fantastic. All right, well, um, let's get into a little bit. Uh, the first thing I usually like to do with a guest on the podcast is, is just kind of get an idea for, um, you know, who they are as a person, you know, what what they do, what they... What they um, uh, what their uh, family is like, what they like to spend their spare time doing. So uh, if you want to just, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Kelsey. Uh, I'm a 24-year-old Australian. I live in Melbourne in Australia. 
Uh, I'm a marketing professional, so I'm a marketing manager for a food tech company that is global, but obviously the Australian head office is in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. I have a nearly two-year-old son and a fiancé. I'm a big gamer. I come from a background of being a community manager for video game companies. And yeah, I've spent all night tonight in the lead up to uh, this conversation watching the Hearthstone Asia Pacific Championships. So <laughs> that's pretty much me in a nutshell, really. All right. So yeah, your your gamer street cred checks out then for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just you know, throw it in there. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's great. Um, so let's let's just talk a little bit about um, you as a gamer. So ha- have you? Is this something that that has always um, been a hobby of yours? Or a passion? Yeah, my um, my parents like to kind of talk about how my first experience playing video games was on my dad's lap when I was a baby. Uh, my parents both worked different shifts, and so my dad had a night shift. Mum worked during the day, mm-hmm. and during night shift, apparently, I was a terrible sleeper. And so the only way I could ever get to sleep was to be sitting in my dad's lap while he was playing. I think it was Commodore sixty four or something. You know, very old. Yeah. No. Absolutely. <laughs> and, that's kind of where it went from there. You know, I've always had a background of, of nerdy things and, and video games in general. Um, I have like three Star Wars tattoos. Um, everyone in my family are massive Star Wars fans. Um, I kind of took that to the next level and got a job at EB Games. I think in America it's called GameStop. Um, yep. Ended up as the community manager for the national EB Games here. And that's kind of where I kind of really combined my my love for video games with my profession. Um, since then, I've kind of moved on and I kind of work more in the tech side of things. Sure. Uh, I work for a company called Zomato. It used to be called Urban Spoon. I think you guys have it over there. Yes, Urban Spoon. A bit yeah. like Yelp. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I've still got the, the geeky side of me still strong, but um, I feel like I've separated it out again. And, uh, you know, it's back to being more so my hobby than my career as well. Sure, sure, absolutely. So, like, um, uh, and it's really cool because a lot of people, um, you know, a lot of people have that, um, you know, that background where you know either their mom or dad was, um, you know, had a system, and 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 I know that's where I came from too. I mean, my parents had an Atari twenty six hundred, and then an original NES. So, like, it's only natural to when you see them doing it, you want to do it too. And uh, who knew that it would kind of like instill this lifelong you know, passion in you, right? Absolutely. And I mean, my dad still kind of talks about how, you know, the most proud he was of me was when I was working at EV Games because <laughs> he got all, you know, the free games and he was so excited about it. He still, you know, I think he still plays Destiny more than anybody I know. Oh, that's um, awesome. Which is, you know, it's pretty cool when it's your parents. You know, my parents are fairly young and my dad definitely was a big influence on me in, in terms of, you know, everything geeky, uh, especially video games. So, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, do you remember some of the favorite games, some of your favorite games you used to like to play when you were younger? Um, when I was maybe like seven or eight, I remember because it was a really big deal for our family at the time because we weren't exactly the richest of families. My mm-hmm. dad for Christmas um, got a PlayStation 1. And okay. I remember the first maybe like three or four hours, us kids weren't allowed to play it. We had to just sit there and watch my dad play it. <laughs> and so he, I think we got Crash Bandicoot and a, a, one of those bundles that have demos for all the, sure, all the yeah. different games. And I remember 
remember we we clocked Crash Bandicoot in about a week, and I loved the shit out of that game. Like, absolutely <laughs> loved that game. Um, but we only could play like the first like two or three levels of the other games. And I remember playing Ace Combat, and that was the best thing in the universe. Uh-huh. Um, and Tomb Raider, I think. And that, those were the only games that really, we really had for a very long time. So we played them a lot. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of just like two or three levels. And I think a lot of kids in our generation probably remember something similar. Like games back then, we kind of tend to forget, but they were like $120, $130 in Australia. Um, they were really expensive. And so you couldn't really afford to have like eight or nine games. It was like you have the one game and that's you for the next six months. So yeah. no, I was I, very well acquainted. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and and it's definitely a relatable thing here in the U.S. But also, so I mean, just the fact that like, you know, as a kid, like if you if you wanted a new game like you would you maybe get it for your birthday or you maybe get it for christmas like there's two windows right when you could yeah (laughs) so like if you got a game you had to like it i mean no matter how bad that game like might have been critically or whatever like if you got a game like you you committed to it absolutely and i feel like that really kind of kicks into that whole nostalgia thing that we I think especially our generation has in that you know everything we look back that happened in the 90s and the late 80s was amazing and you know it was so great it was so wonderful and any all the games today are really crap and rah 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 and I feel like a lot of that has to do with the fact that we had one game and it was like you like it or you don't play a game so (laughs) I feel like that tainted a lot of our you know feelings of nostalgia about that kind of era growing up <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, that's um, that's yeah, that's an astute uh, astute point. Um, so yeah, let's um, let's let's get into the heart of the conversation here. Uh, so the story uh, that you wrote for Kotaku AU, I believe, was called something along the lines of um, "I was homeless and video games saved my life." Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing that headline um, when I, I pitched it to Kotaku. I kind of said, mm-hmm. "Look, I really don't know how." to put this story as a headline. Um, this is what it is. Have a read of it. You know, here's a bit of context as well. Help me out with the headline. Um, and so that's what they came up with. And I remember first reading it going, whoa, this is you know, really intense headline. And yeah. I kind of, I was like, oh, maybe it's a bit too dramatic because I'm not really the kind of person that is <laughs> want to make big displays of drama like that. Um, but after a, a couple of hours and a few conversations with people, I kind of think about it and it really kind of did. Um, and I often, even before writing this piece, you know, will talk about my situation and talk about my past and all the things that happened. And I kind of have this tendency to downplay a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot, it's, you know, innate, especially for Australians. You know, we like to be very humble and we like to kind of not make a big deal out of things. And um, <laughs> Humble? <laughs> what, is, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> I think, like, Australians are very big on it. If you seem a little bit cocky, they will take you down, like, eight or nine pegs straight away. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like, it was... Yeah, looking back after that uh, that article came out and after I got a lot of responses for people, uh, some of them, you know, brought a tear to my eye. They were absolutely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of realized, yeah, you know what? That is an accurate headline. I need to stop 
minimizing this because it's not helping anybody. And if I'm in a position to kind of talk about my situation, Mm -hmm. maybe it is worthwhile telling it for how it is and, and not minimizing it anymore. Sure. And I mean, if it if it makes it gets more people to read the story, I mean, you know, what does that hurt? You know? Yeah. I mean, like, obviously, there's some form of traditional journalism tactics in play. there. <laughs> no, there is. But I mean, it's definitely I mean, it's a story that's that that's worth reading. And I'll, I'll post a link to it um, in the show notes as well. So anybody can uh, can can read this story and, and, and connect it with you. Um, so so let's talk a little bit about um, about homelessness. Um as I, as I mentioned to you offline, I, um, I, um, in my spare time, um, a work on a work with an organization here, um, in Richmond, well, actually in all of Virginia called Virginia supportive housing. And, and what it does is it, it, um, it's a nonprofit organization that provides permanent, like a permanent supportive housing solution for, um, you know, what are now a formerly homeless population. And they, um, you know, it gives it gives them case managers. Uh, it gives them well. First of all, it gives them a, a roof over their head that they can feel like they are, um, you know, they are contributing to that they own and they take responsibility for uh, by you know their rent is subsidized by the grants from the organization as well as um, any kind of um, so, uh, social security or Medicare or um, you know social welfare that they receive, um, and so. I'm familiar with the issue and your, your story like really hit, you know, hit close to home, um, uh, with this population because I I just think it's so, it's so relatable and it's just something that, um, too many people, uh, you know, have to suffer through and it's not, but it could, it could happen to anybody. Um, but it's not something that people think about regularly on a day-to-day basis until maybe they see somebody coming out, you know, when they're, they're coming out of the Starbucks and they see somebody sitting there and, um, you know, like you said in your story, they, they, you know, glaze, you know, glaze over as if they're, they're part of the furniture, which I thought was a, a really, a really, um, good way to put it. Um, but I, I want you to tell this story. I, I just want to give a, a bit of pretext. So, um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, how you, um, how you became homeless in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I should probably kind of start this a little bit by talking a bit about our, um, I guess you call it welfare system in Australia. Um, We're kind of set up ideally um, Mm -hmm. to be quite a good safety net. Um, The idea is that, you know, Australia is not too bad on the scheme of things when it comes to welfare, we call it Centrelink here. Okay. Um, but the problem is, and especially for young people, is there's a big disconnect with being able to actually receive the, the services that they say exist for you. Mm-hmm. For example, um, you know, you have to have a fixed address to start with. So if you're in a position where you need emergency accommodation and you don't have a fixed address, then straight away, Right, you know, you're crossed off the list, and you can't get anything from Centrelink. Um, the other thing is, if your parents earn a certain amount, regardless of whether you do or don't talk to them, you're you're instantly not eligible anymore. Um, if you're not, if you're living away from home and you live in the same state as your family. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you don't live with them, you're instantly crossed off the list. There's this very strict criteria that I'm sure exists in America as well, mm-hmm. whereby you you can instantly get crossed off and 
completely rejected by Centrelink. And once you kind of get rejected and once you kind of get told, no, we're not going to help you, that, you know, closes a lot of doors very quickly. It makes it even harder to get help. Um, Once you do actually get help, you have to consistently prove to them that, yes, you indeed do need help. Mm -hmm. They've got lots of strategies and schemes and stuff, and I'm sure they have similar in America where you have to work for the the dole, um, which is um, not a very well thought out scheme. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work amazingly well. Obviously, you have to do a certain amount of hours, but then you're trying to get a job as well and you don't Mm -hmm. have enough time to do that. So, I mean, all of those things put together make it extremely difficult, especially if you're a young person, to, to get uh, any sort of welfare. So I found myself in a situation where I was um, 18, so just mm-hmm. about to turn 18, and I'd moved up to Cairns, maybe like two or 3,000 kilometres away from where I lived. So mm-hmm. it was still in the same state as my family, but it was it may as well be a different country if it was Europe. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> quite a, quite a while away. Um, I'd moved there with a partner. Mm-hmm. And we lived with her mother. Um, the relationship broke down, as it does when you're 17, 18. Yep. Um, and I ended up in a position where I was in a town where I'd lived there for about eight months. So I didn't really know anybody. Mm-hmm. I was getting four-hour shifts at work. So I was getting maybe maybe $100 a week if I was really lucky. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't eligible for any sort of Centrelink or welfare because my parents lived in the same state and they earned too much money and they... Uh, you know, obviously weren't going to help me out because by me moving and being in a relationship with a girl, it was a big issue in Mm -hmm. and of itself. Um, So I ended up in a situation where I I literally had nothing. Um, It's funny how, you know, you kind of see those, I don't want to call them memes, but the things that your your auntie posts on Facebook about, you know, you, you never know who your real friends are until you go into times of trouble. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, it's crazy, but it really was for me really true. Um, The people that I was hanging around when I was 17 and 18 were, were not great people. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) That's kind of putting it mildly. The, The second that I was in any form of trouble, I literally stopped hearing from all of them. Um, then my phone got disconnected. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I ended up in a situation where I I had no job um, because my phone was disconnected and I stopped turning up to shifts because I was hugely depressed because all my Mm -hmm. friends had abandoned me. And it was just this kind of snowball situation that got worse and worse and worse and worse until, you know, I ended up sleeping on a park bench on the esplanade of, of, Cairns, mm. which is a lovely city until you're living there and you have nothing and no one, um, right. then it becomes extremely desolate and there's no real, you know, homelessness programs up there that I could find anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a real situation where um, I, I ended up completely rock bottom, um, turned to, to drugs, turned to alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, did all those things that people don't really understand until you're in the situation in right. which there's, there's literally nothing to do at all mm-hmm. except sit there and think about the situation you're in. Um, and, yeah, it's it was a pretty rough time for me and it was maybe a year 
a year and a half until I actually ended up living in a house. Um, okay. I bounced between like doing it super rough and um, living in a hostel. I would pay um, my way by doing the laundry for the backpackers hostel. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I graduated to sleeping on the floor of a guy that I worked with <laughs> for a while, mm-hmm. which was a bit crazy because he had pet snakes that were oh right my next gosh. to where I slept. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty mental. It's, and it's like thinking back, you know, we can we can have a laugh about it now um, because it, it is pretty funny to think about it because his house was disgusting. Mm-hmm. I love him to bits still. He's a great guy, but it was just typical 20-year-old dude living with five yep. other dudes' house. Um, and he had pet snakes. So. Yeah. <laughs> It, yeah, it, it ended up being a situation that for, for a really long time, I, I didn't know how to cope. I had no understanding of, of what I should be doing to cope. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's no real government outreach aside from stuff that, you know, you've got it in your head that homeless people are a certain kind of person. And I wasn't homeless because, you know, I was young and, you know, I technically had a job, even if it was like two hours a week doing what God knows what, selling video games. Sure. Um, and so I was, it was this combination of stubbornness and like refusal to kind of reach out and, and go to soup kitchens and things like that. But ended up, I honestly don't know how I survived, to be honest. I just refused help, sat in like this awful bubble of loneliness and anger um, until I managed to get myself out, which, you know, doesn't really happen for the majority of people. Right. Um, and it's incredibly sad that that's the situation that it is. Yeah, and I mean, you're the way that you tell that uh, what you call the snowball effect. I mean, that that happens to just so many people because once one, you know, one domino falls, and then okay, well, you know, then um, you know maybe you have you know trouble with uh, family or, or you're, you're, you lose contact with friends. And I mean, these kind of things would have a significant emotional impact on anybody, but the, to somebody who is in, you know, such a state where they um, don't consistently have a roof over their head, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Like, these are things that like, it, it um, you would, you would hope that when you get there, you know, things start to build back up, that the snowball starts to go the other way, but it, that's not, with most people, that's not the way it happens, and it sounds like Absolutely. that's not the way it, the way it was for you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so one of the things that I I, re- I really appreciated about your story was was that the um, the first person's kind of perspective in which you talked about um, you know being being uh, outside and seeing people pass you. Can you can you just talk a little bit um, and, and I guess just give us that firsthand account of um, you know that that sense of feeling like you're you're kind of just part of the furniture as you put it yeah absolutely and i feel like there's invisibility on on two levels um Mm -hmm. i i'm not too sure whether it's the same in america but i i would guess based on you know gut feeling that it would be quite similar you've got you know the invisibility of of our society has kind of been conditioned to see people in situations like homelessness Mm -hmm. as it's their fault and mm-hmm. they've they've put themselves there and, and they really, they want to be there. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't. Um, 
And, I mean, even I'm guilty of it sometimes as just, like, this visceral gut feeling. And it's it's really interesting and awful at the same time in that when you're kind of walking through a city and you see people experiencing homelessness on the floor, um, mm-hmm. you know, sitting there doing whatever they may be doing, maybe asking for money or whatever it is. And there's just this thing in the back of your head that we've kind of been conditioned to think, oh, you know, if, if they really wanted to, to not be homeless, you know, they would just do X. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're placing the blame on that person so as to not feel guilty yourself and, and so as to not feel like you can do anything to help them because, mm-hmm. you know, they're in a situation that it's fine. If they really wanted to fix it, they would just fix themselves. Um, and I mean, like, that's obviously massive problem number one. And I, I feel like there's an, another problem in which homelessness doesn't necessarily present itself as the homelessness that we innately think about when we, we think about a homeless person. Um, you know, <laughs> the movies and, and TV and entertainment in general portrays someone with homelessness as stereotypically someone who is maybe very mentally ill. And mm-hmm. obviously there's there's plenty of people experiencing that that exist out there and mm-hmm. they are just as deserving of help as, as what everybody else in that situation is. But mm-hmm. I feel like the, the focus on just seeing that as the, the stereotypical homeless person really makes it difficult for a lot of other people that maybe don't fit into that narrow box mm-hmm. to either self-identify or be kind of taken seriously by other people. Um, I remember when I maybe had been living in a house for maybe three or four months and I was explaining to my housemate my my situation and how, you know, I'd, I'd come back from the brink of homelessness and, you know, I was living this life and now I'm I'm getting better and all this sort of stuff. And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, you're not really a homeless person, are you? And (laughs) I was like, well, by what does that mean? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, homelessness means you don't have a home. Um, You don't have stable accommodation. And I feel like, especially for a lot of people, at least in Australia, the data suggests that younger people, Um, of which in Australia is an overwhelming majority of people experiencing homelessness, Mm -hmm. uh, more likely to be the kind of person that is couch surfing, um, mixing up their accommodation, trying a whole bunch of different things rather than the stereotypical person that is sleeping on the side of the road. Um, And I mean, like, that also makes it hard to, to get that recognition because that recognition, you know, for myself in my personal situation was the reason that was holding me back from actually seeking help was this whole thing in my head that I was like, no, I'm not a homeless person. Um, you know, I, I can't be, I can't get the help that's for other people because that's for other people. That's not mm-hmm. for me. Um, and I, I really feel that it, it's such a complex and convoluted problem that we're just so used to painting this lens over um, mm-hmm. that it just becomes such a huge issue to to kind of unpack Um, but yeah it's it's a hard one (laughs) yeah and um just to give a bit of context to uh, as as far as in the united states and um homelessness and and people with uh uh, individuals with mental illness uh uh, in in the in the united states and i think this is a a big part of why this stereotype um exists uh it um 
you know, in the 70s and 80s, a lot of states closed their uh, mental health facilities because they were seen as, you know, backwards and warehousing and things like that. And they closed them. And uh, but they what they didn't do is develop options uh, in communities, uh, places for these people to go. And, um, and that's why uh, well, that was really uh, the birth of chronic homelessness uh, in our country, and 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 why so many people who experience homelessness have, um, you know, mental illness because they they were the people who were who were shut out, um, and yeah. and uh, as as you said, I mean these, um, you know that that's the stereotype, and these and these people are just as deserving as 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 help as you know as anybody else, and. Um, and in some cases, you know, obviously because of their condition, need need more care, need more help. Um, because Absolutely. you know, not 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 just do they need the roof, and do they need to know where their next meal is coming from, and do they need that sense of security? They also need, um, you know, counseling. They need uh, they need medicine, uh, and you know, they need. Um, so for for somebody in that kind of unstable mental state to to add in the um, add in homelessness is is just um, I mean, it's a huge, um, you know, factor in, in their, um, you know, mental health and, and, and well-being as, as, yeah. as a person. Um, and yeah, so that was, uh, I just wanted to provide a bit of context there because I think that is an important, uh, an important thing that you mentioned about, um, you know, about the mentally ill and, and, uh, homelessness as well. And uh, I mean, homelessness in and of itself provides a catalyst for mental illness, you mm-hmm. know? It, it it's a hugely stressful situation um right. you, you're not healthy physically um you're, you're lonely you're often isolated it, mm-hmm. it's this massive massive situation that provides a huge amount of stress on you and and if you aren't already displaying some traits of a mental illness mm-hmm. it, it very quickly you know creates that within a person because yeah. it, it's we're not built as human beings to to be doing that um and yeah it's quite sad you know making as much availability for mental health um providers to, yeah. to kind of be there for people experiencing homelessness i i totally agree is, is a massive thing yeah absolutely and, and you're right i mean and 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 you mentioned too that you know when you were in this situation you you know turned uh to alcohol and turned to drugs and that's not uncommon at all and substance abuse disorder is a form of mental illness so yeah like you said it kind of uh is a self-fulfilling prophecy right in a lot of cases absolutely and i mean like for myself and and i can you know, only really speak properly to, to my own experience because everybody's is so different. But, you know, personally, a, a lot of what I feel and, and the reason why I feel that the title of, of my article is actually accurate is I, I mitigated a lot of the, the really horrible aspects of mental illness by spending and focusing my energy on what most would consider more productive things like video games. Um, And that was how I connected with people and that was how I avoided, you know, buying that extra bottle of wine on a night. And, yeah, I really feel like for myself and my my own situation, having that time passer Mm -hmm. uh, was crucial to, to me kind of getting through everything. Absolutely. So, yeah, let's let's talk about that. That's a great segue. So you um so like you said, you so at the time when you were getting, you know, maybe, you know, four hours a week or, or whatever shifts that was at EB Games, right? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, not only was was um, you know your hobby of gaming sustaining you, um, but you also, I mean, your lifeline to a, a source of income was games, right? Yeah. It. It. And you know, to to take it a step further, my fiance and the father of my child mm-hmm. actually was my manager at the time. Oh, really? So it was. It was really like the only thing that I had going for me at that time in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, the, that four hour, you know, if I had the shift at all, but that, that shift, I looked forward to it so hard every week. It, you know, sometimes it would be like, do I even want to be on this earth? Hey, I've got a shift at EB in two days. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to hang out with my people. I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, talk to my, you know, the guy that I like, who's my boss <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, I'll get through this. It'll be okay. Um, yeah. And, you know, sometimes I'd stay, I'd be working like 10, 11, 12 hour shifts for free just so I could be in the store sure. um, wow. because, you know, where else am I going to go? Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it really did. Um, I can't even explain how much it got me through that situation. Even, you know, the the guys when I was staying at the Backpackers Hostel, um, mm-hmm. there were a bunch of Canadians and we kind of got along and it was pretty cool. Um, they had a um, NTSC console and we have PAL in Australia, which right. means that they couldn't actually play any games on their console, which was a bit of a bummer. Yeah. Um, but we played Geometry Wars, which was preloaded onto the Xbox. And, man, I burned, like, maybe four hours a day playing that for a while there. Sure. Um, I got really good at Geometry Wars. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, you know, we'd talk to each other about like geometry was strategy and mm-hmm. <laughs> like with just how we could beat each other's scores and just the most inane conversation. But because the conversation wasn't about, hey, Kelsey, where are you going to get dinner tonight? Um, right. it, it just, yeah, it was so for me, it was everything. It was that lifeline that brought me from the brink. Mm-hmm. And, and, I'm sure it's strange to think about. I mean, had you not been, um, you know, years earlier sitting on your dad's lap playing those games and and that had been instilled as a a passion in you, um, you know, what would you have been thinking about then, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I hadn't even ever thought about it from that kind of sense because you know for a long time I'm I mean everything's different now and I've grown a lot and relationships have been mended but for a really long time there I was very angry at my parents for you know not stepping in and and Mm -hmm. helping me and then you know not being there for me and and it's it's interesting that the more that I kind of step back from the situation that I was in and talk about it more and unpack it more the more I realize little things like that you know if my dad and I hadn't shared that bond when I was a baby and and growing up Mm -hmm. would I have gotten through the situation six years ago um (laughs) it's crazy no, abs- absolutely. So, I mean, between, you know, working at the at the store and, and um, you know, playing your DS whenever uh, you could get a charge, right? I mean, I imagine that was difficult. You get a low battery on your Nintendo DS. and Yeah, and it ended up getting stolen as well, which was Ugh. heartbreaking at the time because it was like, I think I had everything that I owned um, was in a suitcase and literally every item of belonging that, that was mine. Um, and I kind of downgraded to a backpack because I stopped being able to kind of lug the suitcase everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, a whole bunch of stuff got cold. 
And then I was down, right down to a backpack and then um, had my DS under my pillow at night at the hostel and Mm -hmm. it got stolen. I remember crying for maybe like half a day, which is a big deal for me because I wasn't really a crier at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) someone came up to me and was like, oh, it's okay. You can just get another one. And I just burst into tears. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, um, you know, so you were working at the hostel, um, you said like doing laundry and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you developed that, um, you know, friendship with the Canadians playing geometry wars and, uh, and, um, so, so what was, what was the next step from there? So you're at, you're at the hostel, um, um, because obviously there's a step between you being at the hostel and you being (laughs) a marketing manager for an international (laughs) company. Uh, I feel like it's sometimes like step one, step two, three question marks, profit. Um, Yeah. There's a lot of like scene missing for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of my coping strategy back then was to kind of just not think about things and and just shut down memories Um, because, you know, a a fair amount of pretty traumatic things ended up happening to me um, as a result of being homeless, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, and so like, (laughs) I know that I ended up staying at one of my colleagues at EB Games's house Mm -hmm. and sleeping on his floor. I'm not sure whether he kind of noticed that I was at a hostel and and reached out or whether I did. I feel like it was the former because again, I was a very stubborn and very proud person and didn't really want to, to ask for help. Um, but I remember having a, a conversation with um, one of the guys that was also staying in that house. It was like, I don't know, I feel like there were five guys that lived there, but it felt like 20. Mm-hmm. Um, I was surrounded by dudes at every time. It was crazy. And snakes. Like, yeah, and <laughs> snakes. It felt like um, like what I would imagine an American frat house to be. Yeah. Um, we don't have that in Australia, but, you know, just based on movies it's <laughs> kind of what it felt they're like. pretty accurate they're they were, pretty accurate <laughs> they were great guys and like obviously i i adore them because they got me through a really rough time but yeah at the time i was like oh man i'm yep this floor has never been cleaned um but yeah i remember having a dnm with one of them at some point until like four in the morning or something stupid about my life and what i wanted and and where i was going and you know, why I didn't ask for help and mm-hmm. why I didn't tell people what I was really going through and all, and all this sort of stuff. And I remember him distinctly kind of being like, well, what is keeping you from doing the things that you want to do? And I kind of went, oh, well, all of these reasons. And he kind of went, no, you can just, you know, ask for help and you can you can do it. Like, I believe in you. And he just said all of those <laughs> cliched things that sure. really worked for me at the time. Um, I ended up calling my dad and repairing a relationship with him enough to have him, you know, get me back down to Brisbane, mm-hmm. um, you know, closer to home. And I kind of started real slow and was working at like as a door-to-door salesman and doing really ridiculous jobs for a while there. Mm -hmm. Um, Did a lot of things that I'm really not proud of um, in order to just get money. Um, But I kind of feel like at the end of it, after like me kind of grinding for a really long time, I got into a lot of situations where things came my way, um, like the job opening at the head office for EB in Mm -hmm. a customer service role. And I kind of just took it. 
And, you know, that conversation with that guy at four in the morning was him kind of saying, you know what, you just need to like take it and if there, if something comes your way just grab it and don't think about you know whether or not you deserve it or whether or not you know you're you're not proud enough to be getting it mm-hmm. um and i really took it to heart and you know even today when you know opportunities kind of come my way i, I always think about what he said that right. night and it really um yeah, I, I can kind of credit a lot of where I've come from that one conversation, which is sure. pretty crazy to think about. Yeah, and I mean, you know, a lot of people um, take for granted, you know, they think about, oh, you know, like a customer support or customer service role at a company, like, you know, I don't want to take that job. People are just going to be yelling at me all day. But for you, coming from where you had come from, doing the grinding, like you said, like, I mean, yeah. that's that's a great <laughs> launch pad. And look where, you know, look where it, you know, it took you. Absolutely. I mean, don't don't get me wrong. I am so lucky that uh, the amount of people that, you know, end up in the situation that I was in and don't make it out is overwhelming. Like mm-hmm. I a lot of the reason why I got out of my situation was because I am privileged and because I am lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, I worked quite hard, but sure. I I really feel like there were a lot of factors that came into play that enabled me to to bounce back where a lot of people don't have the don't opportunity have yep yeah absolutely yeah. i mean especially older people who you know they don't they don't have a lot of family left i mean what's what's left there for them to to fall back on you know yeah and hiring prospects i mean like they would have picked me up for that customer service role they would have thought oh she's a plucky 20 year old and she seems to have a lot of spunk and you know sure. she, she seems like a hard worker and she'll learn real quick whereas you know someone maybe 30 or 40 years older even they might go oh you know they're they're 40 they're they're too old for this job sure. and i mean that's you know in australia i'm sure in america as well that's illegal but yes it happens all the time <laughs> Yeah, no, sure. So, um, but now you're, you know, you're, it, it seems you're in a, a much more stable place. You worked hard, you got, you got back to, uh, you, you're in a place now, you've got a young family, like you said, you've got a good job and um, you're able to pursue gaming as, as a hobby and not necessarily a, you know, a lifeline. Yeah. And it, it's crazy how everything really came full circle for me. Um, and just even having this conversation with you now, I'm, kind of smiling to myself thinking wow what the hell (laughs) because you know my my fiance is upstairs um her stone's still going um we're kind of probably gonna play some far cry 4 when i get off this conversation cool Um, yeah and just to think like you know not even a decade ago like half a decade ago i was playing geometry was to make sure that i didn't kill myself (laughs) it's just like it's crazy um and I'm so, so grateful. Um, and it's really immensely, I mean, so important to acknowledge that, you know, the thing that gets you by, whatever mm-hmm. it is, if it's, if it's games, if it's a newspaper, if it's drawing, mm-hmm. you know, that thing that gets you by and, and like passes the time for you hold on to that thing um you know don't neglect it because there will be times in your life i mean obviously not as extreme as homelessness but you know there'll be a time in your life where you need that thing um and yeah it's so important 
Absolutely. Well, um, I, I think that's a that's a great note to end on. Uh, Kelsey, I, I really appreciate you joining me for the podcast today and uh, and sharing your story. Not a problem at all. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.